Previously on Suspicion. He just hadn't got up apparently, but none of his breakfast has been touched and she had left to go somewhere and when she came back she found him uh, in here. She said she found him in here shocked. No, this is his wife. It's Ed Dawson's ex-wife. Ain't that the truth? If she indeed did not do this, then she is one of the most unfortunate women who's ever lived in this county. Who else was there to do it? I think there were some people who knew there was a problem who didn't feel as though they had the level of power that would be necessary to stand up to a sitting judge. The other problem is, is that there were people, I think, in the system who knew what was going on, or at least should have known what was going on, who could have done something about it, and who didn't. There was a judge uh, that came down from Nashville, Judge Summers, I believe. Is he easily intimidated? Oh, no. No, he, 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 I don't think he could be intimidated. Raynella Dossett Leith is sitting in a cell in the Tennessee Prison for Women. She's been here six years. Branded a killer by a jury. And the second trial resulted in a conviction. So she was convicted of the offense of first-degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. She filed an appeal from that. That appeal was uh, denied. The Supreme Court declined to review the case. Labeled a suspected black widow by prosecutors. I mean, this is two coincidences. I think not. With two husbands, I think not. And declared wrongfully accused by a new defense team. Is Raynella wrongfully accused or a black widow? No, oh, I, I, I'm absolutely convinced that she was wrongly accused, and I'm absolutely convinced uh, that she's innocent of this. I've never understood how any of this would have benefited her in any way. And, and everything that I've ever known about her, um, she's a motherly kind of caretaker sort of person. She's the kind of person that if you talk to her, if you knew her for a while, and then I asked you to guess what kind of job she did, you would say nurse. I mean, she's one of those people that is so concerned about the people around her. I, I really think she's happiest when she has someone to take care of. I just can't see it. Can't, I can't see her as a, as a cold-blooded murderer. From the Knoxville News Sentinel and the USA Today Network, Tennessee, this is Suspicion.
everyone back home in Knox County knew by now about Richard Baumgartner. He was the judge who presided over Raynella's second trial for the killing of her second husband, David Leith. He was also a drug addict and a criminal. What grabbed the attention of the court is the issues about Judge Baumgartner. Uh, and those came to the forefront. You're right to say that the issues regarding Judge Baumgartner did come to the central core, and those issues were that at the time of the second trial and at the time of the denial of motion for new trial, Judge Baumgartner had fallen into what became an ever-increasing addiction to narcotics. It had got to the point where it was impacting his ability to function as a judge, his, his ability to adequately perform the judicial function. Because of that, she didn't receive a, a fair trial. And that's what, that's what we ended up dealing with as an issue in the post-conviction petition, in the post-conviction hearing, rather, his impairment and its impact on the case. Raynella's new attorneys, Joshua Hedrick and Rebecca Legrand, are trying to win her a third trial— they say Baumgartner was high on opiates during her second one. Was it a shock to the system when it became known that he had uh, an opiate addiction? I I'm not sure how to I'm not sure how to answer whether it was a shock, and I say that because it was it was apparent to a lot of people that there was a problem. What wasn't apparent was the nature of the problem and the extent of the problem. But the Tennessee Supreme Court had already made a decision on Baumgartner. Even if he was a drug addict, or even if he was using drugs while on the bench, no new trials were to be had in Tennessee. It may sound silly, but if you imagine a case where the judge is just completely out of his mind, high as a kite, right? But he's making all of the right decisions. All of his decisions are legally correct. He, he's up there on the bench and, and he's just eight miles high, but he's not doing anything incorrectly. And so the defendant that comes before that judge, the question is, did he get a fair trial? So one of the possible answers there is, yeah, he got a fair trial because if you had a sober judge, he'd have the same answers. Right, because the judge, all of his rulings were legally correct. It's not that I can say this ruling here on page 482 of the transcript, this is wrong, or this ruling on this this order is wrong, legally incorrect, uh, or you should have allowed this witness to testify and you didn't. Those kind of specific errors. That the structural error is is something so inherent in the process that the process itself is broken. Right, that you did not get a fair trial because the process is busted. Raynella needs a legal miracle and a judicial maverick. Judge Paul Summers certainly looks the part. He opens court with the Pledge of Allegiance. He has a, a white cowboy hat and cowboy boots, and he has you know his very southern accent. He is exactly what. He, if, if you said to me, we're going to cast a play and it's going to be a trial in a southern, old southern antebellum city, I'd say, well, call, call Judge Summers. We'll need him. Judge Summers, I think, has been in every possible role in the Tennessee judicial system. He has been a prosecutor. 
He's been a an attorney general that is the state attorney general. Uh, he's been a trial judge. He, he's the kind of judge that will, um, and some of this I think is because of his appellate experience, but he's the kind of judge that will let the parties argue. They'll let them work with their positions, and he will uh, engage the parties in motion argument. I enjoyed practicing in front of him for that reason. But will he defy the Tennessee Supreme Court and declare that Baumgartner was too impaired to try Raynella's case? Hedrick tells journalist Jamie Satterfield how he feels as he was waiting for the ruling. At this point, you in the very least believe that Raynella has been done an injustice. Yep. And at the very best, you believe she's an innocent woman. Yes. So what kind of pressure are you feeling when you think, hey, we may not get any relief? It's frustrating. It's a difficult feeling because you have, you know that it's all a question of, of whether you did your job properly. And, and sort of the nature of trial work is that it's fuzzy, right? Nothing ever goes according to plan. Things will go close to your plan if you're lucky, but they never go according to plan. And you have to roll with it, right? You have to sort of give yourself over to the, to the chaos and, and, and do your best with what you've got. I'm not, I'm not advocating not having a plan, right? You have to have a plan, but you can't be married to it. When you have a client who you truly believe is innocent and has been done wrong, right? It, it follows you home. You feel as though it's personal, right? You feel as though if, if you lose this, it's going to be because I did this wrong and it's going to be on my head. And that's how you feel um, as a trial lawyer. But Hedrick didn't need to worry. Summers rules the disgraced judge was too high to serve justice, no matter how solid his rulings were. He orders a rare third trial for Raynella and sets her free to await it. Prosecutors are outraged. I never dreamed Summers would write an opinion like that. The opinion is so harsh. It's improper to criticize judges ethically, so I won't do that, redact that. When Judge Summers wrote an opinion about Judge Baumgartner that I thought didn't follow the facts as well as it should have. The first case was on court TV. It was on every minute for days. Of course, we were in the courtroom, and the whole world could see Judge Baumgartner. And nobody ever said anything about his demeanor or being under the influence of opiates or anything like that. And uh, he had some illnesses. And uh, the stress of this type of work will drive people to drink too much or get, get away from it by whatever means for just a little while. And uh, you have to watch those things. But I never noticed anything in the whole trial, ever, one time, where he was not acting properly. What I think they were counting on was the judge, Judge Baumgartner, and whether he was uh, intoxicated by the narcotics on the bench. We did not think he showed any signs. You know, we didn't know he was, obviously, he was doing any. You know, that's what they banked on, and, and they won in that argument, and that's why it had to be retried the third time. The Tennessee Attorney General's office decides not to go to war with Summers over his ruling. By now, there's a new set of special prosecutors out of Cleveland to try the case, 
Stephen Crump, and Sherry Taylor. Mr. McCoyne and I, Mr. Fisher, had decided that we had tried it twice. We had defended the post-conviction. That case had been going on for my whole career at that office, and we were tired, <laughs> quite frankly. So, Ms. Crump, Ms. Taylor, uh, after we talked to them about it, agreed that they would try it. I had handled a death penalty case involving him when he was an assistant district attorney years before. Very knowledgeable, knows the law, gave us our discovery, all of that. Uh, seems on the up and up in terms of doing the right thing. I think he's, he's a, a fine district attorney. And more shocks are coming. Judge Summers had a surprise for these new prosecutors. As it turns out, Judge Summers had both personal and professional ties to Raynella and her late husband, Knox County DA, Ed Dossett. Judge Summers and Ed went to law school together. Judge Summers and Ed both were prosecutors during the same time in their career, and they often socialized at professional gatherings. And Raynella was often with Ed Dossett when he and Judge Summers would socialize together. Judge Summers even went to Ed Dossett's funeral. He asked the prosecutors if they had a problem with that, if they believed that he was biased and could not give Raynella a fair trial. So he put the prosecutors on the spot at the very first hearing after he ordered Raynella a new trial. These prosecutors opted not to challenge Judge Summers as presiding over this case. They said that they believed that he could be fair. But Judge Summers wasn't through taking control of this case. He told these new prosecutors that Raynella would be tried a third time in Knox County, that any effort to have the trial moved out of Knox County would probably be fruitless. Now, as you can imagine, these prosecutors who are from Cleveland, Tennessee, are already a bit anxious about trying a case in Raynella's backyard of Knox County, where everyone involved in this case was known to folks in the system and out of the system in Knox County. But if these prosecutors had intended to try to get this trial moved to another county where folks wouldn't know Raynella and all of the players, Judge Summers shut them down right away. So once again... They opted not to challenge Judge Summers and instead agreed that the case should be tried in Knox County. Their predecessors, Mac McCoyne and Cynthia Schimmel, still can't believe it. The biggest mistake of all in this case was not asking uh, Summers to recuse himself after he wrote that opinion. You know, there's only about 30 DAs in the state and they're a tight-knit group. My thought was that a motion to recuse the judge should have been should have been filed. Uh, evidently, it was not. I was not in the office at that time, so it was not my decision. But that was my thinking. Whether he would recuse himself, I don't know. That would certainly be up to him. But I thought it was something that needed to be addressed. In May of 2017, things are heating up in criminal court. The courtroom was packed not only with people, 
but with journalists. The courtroom itself is ringed with cameras as shows like Dateline and 48 Hours jockey to get footage from the case. Outside the courtroom, attorney-client booths have been transformed into many studios for these broadcast news shows. Judges were coming in to watch the case. Lawyers and prosecutors were coming in to watch the case. Many people who knew Raynella, who knew Ed Dossett, and who knew David Leith were all showing up to see this uh, extraordinary third trial. And in the middle of the courtroom, a bedroom has been recreated. Defense attorney Josh Hedrick has recreated the bedroom where David Leith was found shot to death. So the scene inside the courtroom is rather extraordinary. Battle lines are quickly drawn as 12 jurors step into a jury box and Judge Summers takes the bench. Prosecutors say David Leith was murdered as he slept in bed by his own wife with a gun fired three times. They say the first shot missed, the second severed his brainstem, and only the killer could have fired that third shot. He didn't do much because it severed that brain stem, and that's when all movement stopped, when that bullet went through there. Uh, she had fixed that morning a tray of food and put by his bed. Interestingly enough, as I recall, there was no blood on that tray, and there was certainly blood spatter on the wall, and we had an expert that we used about that in terms of how it would come out if it was suicide, homicide, because the position of his head and how it would have to be for it to give that pattern. Raynella's new defense team steals a page from the first defense trial strategy. David Leith killed himself. So really, in all three trials, the state, they conceded that there are cases of suicide in which more than one shot has been fired. But their position was that it was exceedingly rare. It is rare. That's not the same as, first of all, it's not the same as impossible. Uh, and it's not nearly as rare as you would think. The first thing we have to remember about suicide is that it is by definition, it, it is by definition an, ir, an irrational choice, right? So I, I resist the urge to talk in terms of how what's the normal way to commit suicide because it isn't a normal thing to do. It's important, I think, to remember that uh, if you imagined David in the bed as he was, the f- shot into the headboard lines up with someone hope pointing the gun at themselves and missing over their head, missing high. It seems, Josh, a classic jury question. You all uh, present both both your sides. Raynella does not testify. You both present closing arguments. We are ready to go. The moment for the jury to finally decide one way or the other. What happens? In every criminal case, you have what's called a motion for a judgment of acquittal. It's a, a motion asking the court to dismiss the case because the state has not proved its case 
to the degree that a reasonable jury could convict. When you're gauging that motion, when the court is weighing that motion, the court is supposed to give the state the benefit of the doubt. Look at all the evidence in in the light most favorable to the state and decide whether, under that standard, is there enough evidence that a reasonable jury could convict. And this rule is designed to prevent what's known commonly as a runaway jury. So the concept is that the judge kind of sits as this 13th juror, reviews the evidence as presented, and the question becomes, is there sufficient evidence to allow a jury to decide if it's enough evidence beyond a reasonable doubt? Is Is the evidence legally sufficient? How often... Do, do cases get thrown out on a motion for judgment acquittal? Hardly ever. There have been, a, you know, there have been a couple, but hardly ever. If, for example, if I say, Jamie hit me in the face, and Jamie says, no, I didn't, right? In theory, that would survive a motion for a judgment of acquittal because if we assume that my allegation's true... That's good enough for a conviction. So you make that motion at the close of the state's proof. Um, In this case, we made that motion, uh, as we do in every case. It's typical. We all roll our eyes. We know how the judge is going to go. This case is going to a jury. That's exactly right. Like, it it, it barely barely, uh, bothers mention. And so in this case, when we made that motion, the judge took it under advisement which means he didn't issue a ruling right away. He was going to think about it. I didn't really assign any significance to that because I hadn't tried a case to Judge Summers before, so I didn't know if that was different or not, right? It was unusual compared to what our judges in Knox County would do, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. For the third time in the 14 years since David Leith was found shot to death, a jury of 12 Knox County citizens is ready to decide Raynella's fate. The courtroom is packed and tense. We finish our closing arguments and he uh, excuses the jury. When he excuses the jury, I think that maybe we're taking a bathroom break, right? So we take a break, we come back. And he starts to take up the motion for judgment of acquittal. And he's reading um, a written ruling. Which is, again, unusual, correct? Well, what's, I think what's unusual to me is that because it's so commonly just done immediately from the bench, it's not taken under advisement. Mm-hmm. You know, you make your motion and the judge rules from the bench right then and there. Um, there's no written order prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, it just discusses the evidence with you. So we're sitting there, you know, and we're thinking about where he's going with this, right? Because he's going through the evidence. The first part of his speech, if you will, Mm -hmm. he was focused on and talked about whether the state had proven homicide. Right. Right? Right. And I'm thinking of your client's face as he's talking Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, this was televised. And um, so when he's initially talking... He basically says... This is a homicide. He broke it into two parts, right? He broke it into the two, the two component questions, which are, uh, is this a homicide? And if it is a homicide, did, did they prove she did it? And he found that they, the state had put forward 
enough evidence that a jury could conclude it was a homicide. But at that point, you're not ready to cheer, right? I mean, so far he's saying, yeah, looks like the state's got enough to present this as a murder to this jury. Right, and, and frankly, that's what I was expecting to hear when I first made the motion, right? Was I, when, I, when I first made the motion for a judgment of acquittal, I mean, you always give it your best shot, right? But I expected him to say, Mr. Hedrick, you know, this is a jury question. When it comes to the homicide, I could, I could understand the, the judge ruling that, that a jury could call it a homicide because a reasonable jury could make that decision and we would respect that decision. When it comes to her involvement, though, he says it's a different answer. She, at that point, she kind of looks down, and it's almost like she's bracing for what's to come. And and what everyone thinks is to come is that he's going to deny your motion, and this is going to go to the jury. Right. So he says he thinks, yes, there's enough uh, evidence uh, legally sufficient evidence of murder to allow a jury to consider it. But then he keeps talking. I assure you that this court takes this responsibility very seriously. Yeah, and that's sort of that's sort of an important point because the fact that he separated them in his ruling, and now I'm sitting there at the table, I'm thinking, why do we have to deal with these separately? If, if we're going to have the same answer on both, why didn't we just say, I'm denying? Only two words are required. Either motion granted or motion denied. I'm trying, to, trying not to get in my head about this. I want everybody to know that I have carefully reviewed every piece of evidence and he's talking about the evidence to connect her to the crime, uh, and of which there really wasn't any. And, and he concludes, Judge Summers concludes, that the states had not put on sufficient evidence, legally speaking, to say that she was the one who committed a homicide, that she killed someone. Rule 29 basically said the court can decide whether or not the evidence is sufficient to support the crime's charge. That there was nothing to connect her to the weapon, there was nothing to connect her definitively to the scene, um, and that there's no, there's not sufficient proof as a matter of law that a reasonable jury could convict her of this, of the offense of homicide. It is inconceivable to this court that she could have killed Mr. Leith and taken the steps necessary to establish an alibi within the time frame established. And he grants the motion for judgment of acquittal. The defendant, Raynella Leith, is not guilty. I'll never forget, said Miss Leith, is not guilty of the offense of first-degree murder. You are not guilty, ma'am. You are free to go. What he did was after they finished closings, they actually swore in, or not swore him in, but but he, whatever the process is, for them to start deliberating. Yeah. He sent them back. He took a break. 
And then he came back on the bench and said he was now issuing his Rule 29. That decision. makes it sound even That's worse. Exactly That's, worse. I've never seen that happen in my whole it's, life. Probably, what do you think? Were they convicted in her? The jurors who spoke afterward yeah. said that they were ready to convict. The bailiffs who walked some of the jurors out were the ones that were telling me that there were at least five or six of them that were not just upset, but like livid. The courtroom erupts. Journalists dash out the door, phoning in stories. Rainella's daughters wrap her in a hug. David Lee's daughter, Cindy Wilkerson, stands silent, a stunned look on her face. I was very shocked. I was very disappointed. I think it was that judge's decision. I mean, if he let the jurors make their decision, you know, things might have been different. Prosecutors Crump and Taylor make a quiet exit through a side door. I don't think they did anything less than a good job on it. I think the judge giving a judgment of acquittal was probably an error. We're not supposed to criticize judges, and I, and I wasn't there, so I'm not going to criticize him. No. I'm, I'm just saying as an empirical fact, the, the jurors did not seem happy that they did not get to decide the case. And his reasoning for granting the judgment of acquittal, I don't fully understand. I'll put it that way. And and to be fair, Crump could not have anticipated. I'm sure it came. I wasn't there, but I'm sure it came as a hard blow and shock. Raynella's attorney is just trying to catch his breath. And how did you feel at that point? Honestly, at that point, it was like a relief. Um, it, it was a weight off. You live this case for months, right? And you've been working with the evidence. You've been working, and every time I turn around, I, I find myself saying, "How can this? How can they be prosecuting her? How, how? There's no evidence. There's there's And the more you find, and the more the more that happens, the more concerns you become, right? Because if you go to trial and your client is clearly guilty and you lose, then it's because he was guilty. If you, go to if you go to trial and you're convinced your client is innocent, and you lose, then it's because you did it wrong. And that's a lot of pressure, right? And so you're terrified that the jury is going to convict her because of the, something other than the evidence. They're going to convict her because of the feeling, or they're going to convict her because of the way she looks, or the way... Uh, the diary or the whatever, and and then when when the judge says that, you know, there's it was like a weight was lifted off for maybe to just a second, and then the lawyer voice in the back of my head says, "Is that you know the lawyer says is that appealable, right? You know, because I, I I don't know, right? At this at this moment, it, this is never I've, I've never had occasion to ask." myself whether or not the judges the state can appeal this right and so i have this memory of uh, starting to to go for the westlaw on the laptop to see if i could figure out if this is appealable right and there's like chaos reigning around me um and then um everybody's standing up and i remember thinking to myself well maybe I'll, this is probably not the right time to do this i'll do this later right um and so then we 
we got up and and we left. We left everything. I literally left everything. I think I took my I took my coffee mug and we went back to the office. I said, I'll get this later. It'll be fine. And and what did you learn later when you researched this? Is it a pillow? It's not. So this is done. Rainella is is in the eyes of the law, innocent and free. She she cannot be retried for that murder. She is forever not guilty. In the eyes of the law, that is. But is she innocent? Firearms expert Don Carmen, who testified in all three of her trials, isn't convinced. Uh, my personal opinion is the jury should have given uh, been given the opportunity to hear all the evidence and evaluate it. Were you? What was your reaction to the judge tossing it out without letting the jury decide? Did you have an opinion about that? Well, I have my own personal opinion. Uh, of course, it's not um, it's not part of a forensic scientist opinion. But um, like I said, I'm only one part of it. But um, I was uh, actually shocked. I've been on cases before, uh, testified all across Tennessee, have have seen that where uh, it's it's gone to the jury with uh, what I would consider even less circumstantial evidence. Prosecutor Schimmel sure isn't convinced. We were upset about what happened. Who knows what justice is or is not. That's a different Different view for me, different view for the judge, different view for defense and prosecution. We just thought we had worked very hard and we thought we had gotten the right result. We obviously thought she was guilty. I was shocked. I really was. I mean, I thought it was one of those things. I wasn't there listening to the evidence, taking mine, but I thought it was one of those things that would surely get to the jury. Mm-hmm surely get to the jury so yeah i was i was shocked and i was disappointed because of how hard we had worked on the previous two trials thought that we had gotten justice and now that happened neither is Raynella's stepdaughter i felt like someone had got paid off because, you know, the evidence was all there. Or Steve Walker, the man Raynella almost killed. Did, did you hear about it the day that he did it, that he threw it out? What was your reaction to that? Uh, disbelief. In my opinion, I mean, a judge is supposed to try the truth. He knows the truth. That wasn't the truth. Shouldn't have been done by him. And why not let those 12 do it? They sat there, they went through it. There was no reason for him to do that. It's the good old buddy system. There's really no justice. I mean, there's just, if you know the right people have got enough money, you can get by with murder. And it's obvious. So we thought this would be a good time to take a minute and reflect and uh, discuss our thoughts on the whole process. So I have reporter Jamie Satterfield, uh, reporter Matt Lakin, uh, myself, and then one of our producers, Angela Gosnell. 
So I just wanted to start by sharing my initial thoughts um, coming into this as more of an outsider than most of the people who worked on it. My initial thought was, what in the world is Raynella doing free? You know, it's obvious that she did this. And my opinion shifted a little bit throughout, but never really changed. But uh, what did you think, Angela, as you you were a little bit of an outsider at first, but did your opinion change at all? Or, or what is your opinion on it? Yeah, because the first person we interviewed was Josh Hedrick. And after that interview, I was convinced that she was wrongfully accused. So what what were some of the biggest things that made you think she was innocent because I was having trouble thinking of any reason. It seemed very unlikely that this alibi was made up in any way because she had a phone call from her daughter from the school. I mean, you can't make that up. And secondly, the order of shots, the bullets could have very likely been taken out and rearranged in the gun. Um, And so after that interview, I was convinced that she was wrongfully accused. But as we started to interview more people and more people involved with her in the case, and as it progressed, my opinion completely changed because it just seems so unlikely that this was a suicide. It seems so likely that it was a homicide and it is, there's no other person that had access well, my standout memory for this is always going to be 25 plus years ago. I'm 16 years old. I've just finished bailing hay with my father. We're sitting there eating supper at 11 o'clock at night when uh, we see the news that Ed Dossett has been trampled by cattle on his farm. And having grown up on a beef cattle farm, my father and I both looked at each other and said, no way in hell did that happen. I have to be honest, I still believe that. But I also have to say that if I were on a jury at this point, my verdict would be not guilty. But why? Because I think you have to look at it in the original sense. Not guilty means not proven. And as I look at this all the way through, yes, both of these stories, Ed Dossett being trampled by cattle, that does not appear to me to hold up. David Leith simply shooting himself in the head. There are a lot of questions about that. I still don't feel like I can look at any one thing or any combination of things that conclusively lead me to believe, yes, this person is guilty. Well, then who killed him? There's nobody else that could have possibly killed him. And there's no possible way that he committed suicide. But that's not enough to vote guilty. But what about the Steve Walker thing? That's a separate case. Well, okay, let's talk about that, because that's one of the biggest things that makes me think it's obvious that she's capable of murder. Well, we're all capable of murder. Okay. Right circumstances. Well, that's that's the main thing that made me believe she will kill someone and she has tried before. But maybe I just have too dark of a view of human nature. Everybody's a potential killer. But not everyone has held a gun up to someone and said, I can shoot you right. and I will try right now. Because there haven't been the right circumstances. When it comes to Ed Dossett, what's always troubled me is Ed was about to die anyway. When I look at that case, I think, what did she have to gain? It's the why question. However, he clearly wasn't trampled by cattle. It was clearly death by an overdose of morphine. But then she has to get him out to the barn. That requires help. I'm also wondering, is it possible that Ed got tired of living and suggested 
Right. And so so he may well this may well have been a plan of theirs. If I were on a jury absent any other showing in the Ed Dossett case, I, I think I would have to say not guilty because there's just too many questions for me. However, Steve Walker, when that shooting call came out, I was working. And I remember when we first heard that it was at the Dossett farm and that Raynella was the shooter. All of a sudden, I start thinking, hmm, maybe the widow is not so sweet. She lures him out here. She opens fire on him. None of that's disputed. You know, chases after him, literally gonna gun him down. That's a violent woman right there. And but then why? One of the one of the theories has long been that Raynella uh, had some crazy idea that she could get the Walker's son. And that seems to fit the picture. Because she had lost her own son, her and Ed's. Uh, young son, in a car wreck, as we've talked about in this podcast. So there was some thinking that maybe she was just a little insane with grief at that point. Then she finds out Ed's catting around on her, and not only is he catting around on her, but he had a kid. She's lost her kid. She's lost Ed. So she's going to take this kid. Why she targets Walker, though, uh, who's in sort of the same boat with her, he's just found out that he's been lied to and, and all of this. I don't quite understand what she was thinking, but there's no doubt that she wielded a weapon with the intent to kill. So then when David Leith turns up dead, I'm suspicious already walking in the door on that one, if you will. Why? Why did she want to kill David Leith? Because she, if she had just waited for him to die, she would have gotten the inheritance anyway. Yeah, and his his land holdings were much smaller than hers. Right. That's the that's the other problem with this for me. It just for this to be true, Raynella has to be an evil genius on the level of Lex Luthor squared. She has to have been planning this for what, five, ten years in advance, from the time that they go to the lawyer to redraw the wills, uh how many for however many years she is keeping the diary David's health problems that she is supposedly inducing, it just seems to me too grand of a design. No one can conceive and carry out a plan like that that flawlessly. But what about this, Matt? What if David Leith was the one that helped her get rid of Ed? So she's plotting to get rid of David almost from the get-go. And she she knows how to do it now. She knows how to drug and make it look like he's sick. And it's still an awfully long game, though. It is a long game plan. I mean, that requires a level of patience and planning that I'm not sure is humanly possible. And how did she get all those drugs? I mean, she can't just walk into a... It's not as easy as people think it is to just, you know, right. pocket some narcotics <laughs> from the nurse's station. I mean, at one time, maybe you could do that, but, but I don't everyone think... everyone she... said, she's a nurse, she can get it, she's a nurse, she can get it, but you can't just right. walk in and get that. To some degree, this is almost like the, uh, the old-time witch trials. Everything that was being used in Raynella's defense suddenly becomes a weapon against her and vice versa. Everybody kept saying, well, she's a nurse, she's a nurse, but not one witness putting her anywhere near a medicine cabinet, if you will. That's that's a big hole in the case. But but I but I have to be honest and say that at the end of the day, even though I might not have on a jury found beyond a reasonable doubt, 
I think that woman is a cold stone killer. Then why do you think it didn't at least get to go to a jury? Part of his job is to say, I have not heard enough evidence to justify prolonging this trial by sending it to a jury. That People seem to forget that. That is the judge's job. He but has the right. It so rarely. In Maybe the it doesn't happen enough. <laughs> because I've seen some cases I don't think should have ever gone to the jury. You know, the safest thing for Judge Summers to have done was to let it go to a jury. But but now there there's controversy in that decision uh, because there are people who think that Judge Summers, from the minute he got the case, that he already had a belief that Raynella was being wronged and that he did everything from giving her a new trial to throwing it out in a Rule 29 motion uh, to make this case go away. Paul Summers and Ed Dossett knew each other. He went to Ed Dossett's funeral. A lot of people went to Ed Dossett's funeral. A lot of people went to Ed Dossett's funeral. That's true. You know, and, and one thing about this case, too, is the fact that age was not kind to this case. You know, if you think about not it. Not typically kind to any case. It's not. That was a big thing for me, the fact that the case sat there, and then all of a sudden, because she went to probate court to try to establish that she should get the inheritance, but if she had not done any of that, none of this would likely happened. Because she, because at that point, that's when they said, well, she can't have the inheritance because she killed him. So what if she had never done any of that? What if she had just left, left it all to Cindy? I mean, would, would it even have gone anywhere? I, I think, but for Cindy Wilkerson pushing, um, and that's why she filed the action, um, was to, to push. Uh, she wanted a court to say that her father was murdered and that Raynella did it. Um, but, but no, so I think if Cindy had not pushed that, uh, it did not appear to me at the time that Detective Perry Moyers was getting a lot of support from his agency on prosecuting this case. And the DA's office here have, you know, threw up their hands and didn't want any of it. So really, Cindy, I think, is is a big reason that uh, Raynella was even charged. Raynella's defense attorney in the second trial, James A.H. Bell, I, I do not understand how he could not see what Meredith Driscoll saw. But then we learn that he was representing Judge Baumgartner's drug dealer. How is that not a conflict? I mean, <laughs> that part of it, to this day, I don't understand Jim Bell's thinking there. And he won't talk about it. Okay, so now I really want to hear what you think about Judge Baumgartner. Matt, I know you have some thoughts about the judge. Everyone expressed all this sympathy for him after his death and after his downfall. But this started because Dina Castleman came to him asking for help. She was trying to stay clean. As I read the court record, she was trying to stay clean, trying to sort her life out. And what did he do? He said, oh, yes, I can help if you can get me some drugs. So she is not the tempter in this. He is. And that is completely forgotten, has never been stressed by anybody. And everybody boo-hoos when he dies. And suddenly he becomes this angel with a black robe. That's my opinion. 
one of the things that, you know, really to this day uh, continues to upset me is I keep seeing Dina Castleman's name pop up on jail list. This woman, there is no doubt she went through the drug court program. She didn't make it through. But she goes to Baumgartner for help to get, you know, she was asking for a job. She wanted to do the right thing. She did, absolutely. Where is she today? She's in jail today. So here you have a a, a woman who, you know, if you look at it as she takes her one shot and finds out that the judge is an addict. And she went to the one person she thought she could trust, that she thought would help her. Right. So so what... She thought would believe in her. Right. And not and so not only does she get used by him and used in awful fashion. I mean, she's a drug addict, but let's face it, she's a young woman and he's an old man and not a very attractive man. She was in a position of she's an addict, he's got incredible power and authority, and uh and he essentially turns her into a prostitute. I mean, that's what he did, let's face it. She would not have been engaging in that behavior with him but for the drugs and for his power. And, you know, I mean, this woman was in the hospital with a blood illness from her addiction. And he leaves the bench, goes to the hospital, makes her call, we now know Chris Gibson, to have drugs delivered to the hospital. Well, there's an entire blindness about Baumgartner's behavior. You can explain some of it away. I suppose, as just the throes of addiction. But some of it, I mean, the man is just drunk with power. He's strutting into the hospital. He's ordering the nurses around. The nursing supervisor balks when he says, well, I am this woman's attorney, so I have a right to see her. And she thinks, no, you're not. You're the judge I saw on TV during the murder trial. He's driving into the trailer park in his official vehicle with judges' plates, just still in his pinstriped suit, to walk in to buy his drugs, thinking no one is going to notice. I mean, he thinks he's 10 feet tall and bulletproof. You know, one thing that I I love about this case, and, and I'm glad that this is one that we chose to start off uh, the Suspicion podcast, is because even sitting here today, although I have a gut feeling about what I think about Raynella, there's always going to be a bit of uneasiness and so there's a part of me that thinks, how terrible if she is wrongly accused. How awful for her, for her family. But then how awful is it if she's guilty and she's walking free? And I, and we will just never know until, until the day, if ever, she decides to tell us. Because one thing that tends to get lost in these stories is this is not just a script playing out for our benefit. These are people's lives, and they have to go on after the conclusion of this story. Judge Summers is back in Nashville, retired and not talking about Rainella. Rainella is keeping quiet, too. What is her life like now? I can't imagine. Either way, I mean, either either way you think about Rainella, 
she's been through the ringer. And let's face it, there's a, a portion of the population in Knox County that does and will always think not only that she killed David Leith, but that she killed Ed Dossett, and she got away with it. Hmm. So she lives in that environment, so to speak. But what can you tell us a little bit about her life now? She's back home. I mean, she has her, she has her children. She has her grandchildren. She has her, her farm. And she has sort of, she has the, by and large, I think, the retirement that she thought she would have years, a long time ago. She plays with her grandchildren. She goes to see them play sports. She spends time with her her children and and the rest of her family. Uh, And she sort of has her quiet existence. She has her flowers and and her her farm to tend to. and, And she's just, she's just there with her family. She has her life back. Is Rainella truly innocent? Or is she a black widow? A woman so cold she killed her children's father and stepfather and lied about it? So cunning she beat the very judicial system her first husband devoted his life to. If it's true, the question still remains. Why? Why would a woman kill a husband who is already dying? Why would a woman kill a man who she says is the love of her life? It's all up to God. He's the ultimate. Suspicion is a production of the Knoxville News Sentinel and the USA Today Network, Tennessee. It is narrated by me, Courtney Roark, written by Matt Lakin and Jamie Satterfield, and produced by John Garcia, Erica Whitney, and Angela Gosnell. Original theme music by Elijah Newman and Chris Potosik. Sound engineered by Elijah Newman. You can subscribe to Suspicion wherever you typically listen to podcasts. Be sure to rate and leave a review as well. You can also keep up to date with us on social media. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SuspicionPod.